Good afternoon and happy Tuesday. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. Although I'm not in the studio today, I want to share with you a conversation that I had at the Women's Rights National Historic Park in Seneca Falls, New York, last summer. And if you're not familiar with this National Historic Site, the Women's Rights National Historic Park tells the story of the first Women's Rights Convention that was held in 1848 in this spot, and it introduces the women who led the movement, who led the movement at a time when women were not recognized as citizens of any stature under the law, and that for most women it was illegal to speak out in public without the permission of their husbands, and they were not allowed to speak out in public in most public spaces. So to find a space in Seneca Falls where women could gather together was revolutionary in itself. And I'm excited to share the stories of some of these women who were ordinary people who went on to do extraordinary things. And it's interesting because the timing is perfect at a time when the women's movement seems to really be heating up again. I've been thinking a lot about where we are. Are we in a fourth wave? Are we in a wave at all? Or are we in a completely new place when it comes to women's rights? And I really think that what we are is a part of a long rolling, slow rolling revolution that actually started back in 1848 with the first Women's Rights Convention. Because if you think about it, we've been moving through history in this slow rolling effort to gain equality for women that at times has just been quietly chugging along with firm resolve and persistence outside of the mainstream media, not getting a lot of coverage, many people feeling like the women's movement had passed, there was no need for conversations about equality anymore. And then at other times, I don't see the waves as being separate movements or that the demands of each generation as being any different from the generation before. I believe we've been a part of a 120-year continuous march for equality, for civil rights, for human rights, and for recognition of the importance of women and the feminine in creating a balanced, healthy, functioning world for all. And this thought that we're part of a long, rolling revolution really keeps me from getting discouraged when I think about the fact that we've still failed to ratify the ERA, that the pay gap still exists, that sexual assault and sexual harassment and intimate partner violence are all still a common occurrence for women, and that the caring work done mostly by women is still considered of little to no value in our economic and cultural system. When I'm feeling defeated with each rescinded reproductive right or access to health care for women, I remember that this effort toward equality is not just one battle to be fought, but it's a part of a long sustained effort by women of every generation to stand up against the long held power of the patriarchy as women and men who care about equality and balance and esteem for both men and for women. We're not alone in our quest. We're actually surrounded by generations of foremothers and sisters standing by us and our daughters rising, and that with each push backwards, there are still many more strides forward that we've seen 
And when I think about the ordinary people doing extraordinary things, I am inspired by the words of Harriet Stanton Blatch. An ordinary woman doing extraordinary things is the daughter of one of the pioneering activists, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And Harriet Stanton Blatch said, All honor to women, the first disenfranchised class in history, who, unaided by any political party, won enfranchisement by its own effort alone and achieved victory without shedding a drop of human blood. Harriet Stanton Blatch carried on the work of her mother and the other suffragists, and this keeps me feeling positive and hopeful and focused as I work to find my own voice and my own style of activism and to pass those values on to my daughters and my nieces and my granddaughter. And I find it hard to be discouraged for too long when I realize the magnitude and longevity of this movement. And think about it in context. 140 years isn't much when you are attempting to roll back hundreds and hundreds of years of systematic devaluing of women and the feminine. I'm happy to share with you my conversation with the park rangers at the Women's Rights National Historic Park in Seneca Falls, New York. This part of the country is very special to me, and it also has a really unique, powerful energy to it. It's drawn people from all over who have been a part of some of the most interesting movements in our culture. Western New York is the birthplace of Mormonism and spiritualism. It is a stronghold of the Quakers and the Amish and Buddhist ashrams. Western New York is the birthplace of the humanist work done by Carl Rogers and is also the birthplace of the women's movement in the United States. I come back to this part of the country every summer. It makes me feel grounded. I feel revitalized. And on this trip last summer, I stopped in for a third visit to the Women's Rights National Historic Park to get a formal tour. And I also wanted to hear more stories about the women who first heard the call and came forward. I had the pleasure of speaking with Rebecca Weaver and Quentin Peacock. And although I'm not in the studio today and won't be taking calls, you can still share your thoughts about the show by visiting our Facebook page, The Reluctant Therapist. You can send me an email to elizabeth at thereluctanttherapist.com. You can listen to previous shows at kcbx.org under the News Talk tab. And you can podcast our show by visiting Apple Podcasts, searching a conversation with The Reluctant Therapist, and hit subscribe. And as always, you can support Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX, by visiting kcbx.org and hitting the Donate Now tab and making a pledge. I know this pain. Why do you lock yourself up in these chains? No one can change your life except for you. Rebecca, so I'm going to let you give me the tour, and then I really want to get a sense of the historical park from your perspective as the ranger. Sure. But just to give you some background, of course, Women's Rights National Historical Park was created in December 1980 by Congress. And the entire point of it is to protect the history, this being the most formal location point of the women's movement towards the struggle for equalities. So you first come on in and you are greeted by three ladies dressed in antebellum clothes. It's 1840s, of course. And of course, Frederick Douglass is here with the ladies. He was invited to attend. 
But to get us started, we actually need to start with Elizabeth K. Stanton, who stands next to him. Along with, who's next to her, Lucretia Mott, we'll meet up at the World Convention, it's anti-slavery convention in London. Oh, okay. Actually, Elizabeth K. Stanton is on her honeymoon with her husband when they're at this convention. And these two ladies meet because it's, they're at this convention and the first day was they spent just discussing what to do with the ladies. We're supposed to be here talking about slavery, how to handle this issue, and they spend it all talking about what to do with the ladies in the crowd. <laughs> and they end with, well, they can sit here, but they're going to be up in a balcony and be quiet. Well, So at the convention to end slavery, the people running the convention didn't know how to handle having women present at the <laughs> conference. Yeah, it was just not a topic that you would discuss in mixed company. <laughs> but did, so. did Katie Stanton... And her husband go on their honeymoon purposely there to attend the convention? So her husband, yes, is a strong abolitionist speaker. Okay. So there is this tie. And that's what most of these have a background in. Lucretia Mott is already a big name, too, by the time this convention, the world anti-slavery convention is happening in London. She has a huge following for abolitionist movement as well. Mm. And her, along with her sister, who is amongst the crowd, uh, Martha Wright, Jane Hunt, and... Marianne McClintock, they all are Quakers, and they're all huge in the abolitionist movement. And then Elizabeth Casey, along with her husband, are going to be huge in that, too. So they're, of course, going there, part of their honeymoon, part of the reason. And, yeah, this kind of infuriates them, though. That entire day that we could have talked about how to handle the issue of slavery, we discussed what to do with the ladies. <laughs> do we not have the same rights then and everything? So it starts this really... Elizabeth K. Stanton writes that she is fascinated by Lucretia Mott, that she will listen to anything that she will say, and they decide that they'll do something about this when they get home. But when they get home, schedules get in the way, of course. Lucretia Mott is famous. She's out giving her speeches. She's out doing her thing. And Elizabeth K. Stanton is now home, still in the abolition movement and everything, but she now is starting to have children. So it's going to be some time before they meet up again. And... Uh, Elizabeth Casey actually was living up in Boston. She moves out here a year before the convention yeah. is to be held in 1847. And Lucretia Mott's going to come up to visit. So this is in, uh, on July 9th of 1848. Lucretia Mott is going to be here. And over at Jane Hunt's house, they actually are going to have a day where everyone's meeting up. While they're there, they're just talking. And this fires up the fuel again. It's eight years later, and they start discussing this. And they finally decide they're going to do something about this. They're going to have a convention 10 days after they come up with this plan. Of course, they do have a lot of support. Lucretia Mott's husband, uh, James Mott, he was very supportive of it, along with Richard Hunt and even Marianne McClintock's husband. Uh, now, Elizabeth Casey's husband, she's, he's away right at this moment, so we're not fully sure like what <laughs> he was, his thoughts are. But, of course, one of the first things that they do is actually one of the McClintock's daughters they start sending out some newspapers, get publicity out there, tell people about this convention we're about to have, and they invite Frederick Douglass to make sure that he will be there as well. He was a very strong supporter of the women's rights movement. So they get it out. Thanks to having a strong Quaker network, news will travel fast. <laughs> so they'll sit down and try to actually figure out what is it that we want to address. This, we know we're going to have a women's rights convention. They decide to mimic the Declaration of Independence, with now the Declaration of Sentiments. So they are going to address these grievances in this way, and they do, they map it all out, and it's a beautiful document. I would encourage folks to fully read it. I could not do it justice <laughs> in this little bit of time. And, and the Declaration of Sentiments 
was kind of the foundation or the cornerstone of mm -hmm. what the convention went on to be. And it was really just a small group of women who, who came up with this. Yeah, it's crazy. Okay. It really was five people who had an idea the support of their, like others in the community as well. Because without that support, it would have just been the five of you, them. And when they show up here on July 19th, they're, and they estimate approximately 300 people are there. Uh, the first day was supposed to be reserved for the ladies only, but quite a few gentlemen showed up, so they allowed them to attend. And day one, they reviewed the Declaration of Sentiments along with some talks from like Lucretia Mann and other coers. And then day two, they fully review it and vote on these resolutions. And most of them were unanimous. The one that gets the pushback, though, is the right to vote. Really? Yes. Um, it seems pushback like from other women? Uh, from uh, quite a few people. Uh, Lucretia Ma actually will make a comment that they'll basically she makes a comment that they'll be seen as crazy if it, it's a little bit too far. Like okay. so everything else it's okay but this one is one step up. So they want to make sure that they can actually put this out there without being seen as like a little bit crazy out there. <laughs> But Frederick Douglass will be like, how do you expect to get anything else? They're looking for property rights. They're looking for education, rights to their own wages, to have jobs throughout. And in their own words, to no longer be civilly dead in the eyes of the law. So if they expect to get any laws made, then they're going to have to have the right to vote, put people in there that will provide them with these rights. So he really pushes for it. And sure enough, it will pass with a majority. And that is that cornerstone document then that we all have with that key phrase. We all know the one from the Declaration of Independence of all men are created equal. Now in the Declaration of Sentiments, it's all men and women are created equal. And Elizabeth K. Stanton wrote out that document, which is an amazing piece of history that we have here. And of the approximately 300 people that show up, 100 people will actually sign it. And it'll be 68 women and 32 males who will sign it off. So it's quite amazing. And Elizabeth K. Stanton will go on to continue to talk about women's rights. Herself, though, having seven kids, she can't really go far. She tells us that she feels like a caged lioness. So say, say it again. A caged lioness. Okay. Yeah. She's stuck inside her home. She has to take care of all the household chores and everything. 1851 is when she meets Susan B. Anthony. And Susan B. Anthony is able to take her words and take them to the nation. So, and other conventions will follow, talking about women's rights. Uh, two weeks later, Rochester will have one. The biggest ones will pop up about two years later in uh, Massachusetts. There will be one as well. So it's, and most of the folks that attended the first convention, they're not attending because, oh, women's rights, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're like, women's rights. So what are they talking about? They're curious to hear, what is this? new idea of what they are. What could women possibly need? And yeah. what I find interesting also is that these were mostly women of means, yes. right, who were considered to be very comfortable and what, could, what more could they want or possibly need to have because their lives are so easy. And the other thing that's interesting is when this started, it was 1848. Yes. And the right to vote didn't pass until 1920, so this is the beginning of a long movement. Unfortunately, Elizabeth K. Stanton, Susan B. Anthony won't even get to see that right at all. So was it because states were starting to allow women's rights to vote in 1917 that kind of pushed the 19th Amendment? Um, it's kind of a dual effort, I would say. Uh, Jeanette Rankin. Never heard of her. Yeah. She is the first woman elected to 
Congress. Really? She is a Republican representative from Montana. She's in office before women even have the right to vote on the national level. She'll help create the Women's Suffrage Committee in the House. Um, of course, they have some words about her being the first woman in there, but she will have much backing and support that way. So we have things happening on the national level. People are already being voted in. Things are being discussed. Amazing history. <laughs> and so we're only still in the first room yeah. and still just in the suffragist first wave of feminism. If you're just tuning in, I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. Today, we are visiting with the park rangers at the Women's Rights National Historic Park in Seneca Falls, New York. Now we're in the back of the historical park, and it's a wall of photos. Yeah, so we call this our wall of women, and it is to be kind of a little bit of a cross-section okay. of all different... There's some big names, like we have Jean Adams, who was a, she won the Nobel Peace Prize for her work in Chicago at the Hall House. Uh, but most of them are just kind of everyday Americans. I love that. So you have the one lady who is holding up her bobcat, <laughs> and literally that's the only description that we can get on it. <laughs> and that she was her. And her rifle. Yeah, and so her clearly rifle. Clearly she took yep. the bobcat down. <laughs> exactly. So. I wonder how they choose who is the idea to just show all the different forms and interests that women, how multifaceted it is to be a woman. Yeah, true. And that's really hard. There are thousands upon mm -hmm. thousands of photos of women and what our role is and what it is like. So just trying to narrow it down, I think we have about 65 photos. It does not do it enough justice, but we try our best to incorporate as much many stories as we can. So what's one of your favorite stories as we walk of the people? Find this, I'm trying stuff. to read them while we're talking yeah. also. Look at all these great things. This uh, one with the, it's one, two, three, four, five generations. That is uh, Mary Wells. She is huge out west. Uh, most of the folks uh, in Montana can trace like an ancestry to it. Oh, wow. She herself was originally born in Virginia and then she'll move on out there and she'll actually be a wagon trail leader. She'll oh, really? continuously, she'll, uh, one time she bought, she was very resourceful and she bought herself some whiskey and some apples and made apple pie, selling them for a dollar a piece while she was going out there. So she was one of those first people who would go continuously back and come back out. And so I'm not sure if She's the lead leader, but she's definitely all, continuously, she never just settled down. She would go back and forth on these trips and everything. So she was helping to populate the West. Kinda, yeah. Was it like on the was Oregon the, Trail then? I'm not sure what trail she was on exactly, but she has huge work. Um, so it's Mary Wells Yates. It's okay. her full name. Was it, there any connection between the Underground Railroad passing through this area that made Seneca Falls a natural as the starting point for this? Um, so Seneca Falls, of course, is having that huge Quaker influence. Like Quinn was saying, we're in the burnt-out district. That means multiple religions came through the area, so everyone's basically converted to some religion up here. And then abolition is huge up here. Um, so we do have what they write down is that like Mary and McClintock and her house, they were supposedly a stop on the Underground Railroad. So it is running through this area. They are working along it. Now, in particular, Seneca Falls, of course, is where Elizabeth K. Stanton is. There's family members in this area, so that's why they're coming out here. And the Wesleyan 
church, which for the chapel is what it's called, it was picked in particular. Um, it was a place that one, the men could reserve for the ladies to go into, and it was a place that allowed the, these ideas to be spread. So they allowed people to come in and talk about abolition. They allowed people to come and talk about temperance movements. So there was a lot of reform movements just up in this nook up here in uh, Western New York. So, well, and there is the the Quaker influence too, yeah, that's and that, they huge. were yeah that without the Quakers push. Uh, or vision that we might not have ever gotten here. These are yeah. these are beautiful displays too. So you're talking about what rights did married women have, which is something people don't understand is when you're talking about trying to develop women's rights, you're starting from a place with zero rights because women were considered property of their husbands at that time and their fathers in some way, right? Um, a bit. According, like going back to Elizabeth K. Stanton's words in the Declaration of Sentiments, when married, they are civilly dead, legally dead. Everything belongs to their husband. Even if in the Declaration of Sentiments they say that even if a married woman commits a crime, if it's in presence of her husband, she is not responsible. Really? Basically is what it gets down to in it. So it goes through all the different things, that her wages are not her own. Um, so it is. Everything does go into your husband. You are to obey that husband. And it's interesting because when I teach the feminist movement in my class, I talk about how all of the significant waves came in clumps, starting with some civil rights action, like the abolitionist movement, and then the civil rights movement, and now the Black Lives Matter movement. There's always these things happening at once, and then an environmental movement, and then a wave of women's movements. Like, they don't happen in isolated events. They all seem to bubble up from the consciousness. It's not just one thing we all work together mm -hmm. it's not just a oh, one little issue here no every single thing does link up to each right. other it's like big movements yeah. bubbling up yeah. to the surface in so. some ways it, the the historic the park feels like a place to inspire whatever comes up for the people here you know like it doesn't it doesn't seem like it's trying to teach one lesson but it's sparking a lot of lessons about what it is to be women and um, sort of part of the our in our legislation it says our purpose is to educate and inspire Perfect. for present and future generations to learn about our cultural and our historical significance and this struggle for women's rights for these equal rights and everything so it is a place that really does people come on in here and they read it and everybody takes something different away yeah. from here of oh I didn't know that oh my gosh I need to look more into this mm -hmm. oh, I'm pretty sure we're gonna need to figure out where we can put some facial tissues up at some point oh, absolutely. yeah because uh, it is it's a moving moving place that I, th I think one of the things that's interesting too is <clears throat> that Martha Wright Yes. is the sister of Lucretia yes, Mott they're is. both coffins and so I would like to of course know because as a psychotherapist I was yeah. thinking of the family history that their parents must have been very progressive to have two daughters that were so progressive so um the Krishama and of course Martha writes they grew up in Nantucket which okay. is of course a very it's okay. their husbands go out and trade leaving the women behind to manage the accounts and what's going on at home, go out shopping, manage the store and everything. Well, they're off and they're coming back and they're doing all this little, like trade and everything. So they grow up with that idea of like, oh, okay, well, this is 
this is normal. Right, like, it's a partnership. The marriage is a partnership. Yeah, yeah. So this is normal. And it's not until they fully go out, out into the world that they kind of learn, like, oh, this is kind of woman's place and that there's this isn't how I was brought up. Okay, well, what do we do to make kind of our normal? <laughs> right. Yeah. A more broad, accepted yeah. thing. Yeah, so, yeah, Mar Martha Wright is the lesser-known sister. <laughs> I just said it because I, yeah. I wasn't familiar with her at all. Yeah. But I always do find it fascinating that that everything has to align. You have to be in the right place with the right social conditions, with the right family structure that allows people to have thoughts and speak out. I mean, it it's, it's, has to be the perfect... It, it does. It has, it's like if Elizabeth K. Stanton never went to that world convention exactly. over in London and Lucretia Monti decided to go too, I don't know. But that's a what-if game that I don't I like love fly. the what-if games, yeah. I know. And they think about that, too, just yeah. all how... When they even talk about writing the um, Declaration of Independence and they talk about kind of divine intervention that some of the founding fathers must have had to come up with that document, yeah. in some ways you feel like that same divine uh, inspiration must have happened for these women to be brought together and then to write the Declaration of Sentiments, which... Yeah, which everyone should read. Oh, yeah. by the way, it's Martha. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and you're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. Today, I'm sharing with you a show from the road, my interview with Park Rangers Rebecca Weaver and Quentin Peacock at the Women's Rights National Historic Park in Seneca Falls, New York. We continue our conversation talking about the founding mothers including well-known pioneers Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Lucretia Mott, and her sister Martha Wright. Martha Wright, who scandalously attended the first convention seven months pregnant and went on to be an outspoken activist throughout her life. like to, because we're talking about how the women who inspired change throughout our history had to have the right family of origin, had to have come from the right part of the country. So what were a few of the factors that created Martha Wright's uh, confidence in speaking her mind? So she was actually, um, from what I'm learning more about her, she was actually more of a writer. And I think it was definitely her Quaker upbringing and definitely her kind of background that really set the stage for the rest of the convention and the rest of the events that happened. So she um, was the youngest um, child of her parents, um, Thomas and Anna. And Lucretia Mott being her older sister, she constantly was like surrounded with the Quaker influence and kind of the faith that kind of shaped how she went about her life. But she really... Um, was she was the youngest child so like her parents and her other older siblings were doing all these amazing things and she kind of I don't want to say it was rebellious but her kind of her personality was much more abrasive than girls during that time and she really kind of didn't let that um, that abrasive personality um, let people kind of put her down because of that and she kind of embraced it and really went about her life with the rest of that personality so Unfortunately, her first husband passed away, but she really kind of decided to break away from the pact in a, 
in a kind of literal way because she, um, the rest of her family living in Philadelphia, she was the only um, one of her family members who moved to Auburn, which is upstate New York. Yeah, so <laughs> really kind of shifted from the rest of the traditional gear, and that really kind of cemented her place. And this place in New York specifically being... Um, centered around reform. She took an active role with her children kind of growing up and making sure that they knew um, right from wrong because she was still a woman of the time. She was definitely taking a role in the household and she definitely was making sure all of these things were happening but she was doing it in a way that she could kind of balance her writing and kind of her humor with the rest of the movement and once her children were old enough to take care of themselves or at boarding school kind of learning um, Quaker mannerisms and Quaker values um, even though she wasn't Quaker technically she still instilled those into them um she um went out and she did so much work she was um she chaired several of the conventions she was a secretary for many of them so her her writing like her her just sarcasm and her pure kind of personality um it's very raw and it's very organic in kind of her her letters to family kind of this the minutes from the meetings and really it just em um, symbolized just who she was as a woman but also kind of the movement as a whole and really that these women weren't um, they were going to make sure that their voices were heard and that's what Martha was kind of doing um, but her it was very indirect like not a lot of people know about her and kind of her story but she was one of the greater women who made up one of the greater pictures of the movement and so I think like she's one of my favorite if not one my favorite woman here um, depicted out of the five just because she exemplifies kind of that personality in which she does not care what people think of her she did not care what her neighbors thought of her being a very dangerous woman as they would often call her so really i don't know she's she's just a great person to kind of talk about and kind of discuss because not a lot of people know about her and she's really that's really what this park does is talk about not a lot of the things that we're familiar with in traditionally united states history is really kind of definitely i love martha she's really cool I think for a lot of people, we see girls who speak out or women who speak out and speak their mind. It was really chancy to speak your mind at that time. Like for someone like Martha, right, to have a voice and to want to use it was was much greater of a risk than like Lady Gaga wanting to do something outrageous because yeah. of the times. I think it, as a historian, it'd be fascinating to be able to immerse yourself in one particular piece of history and become an expert on that. It's almost like earning your PhD from park to park. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. There's multiple different facets that um, kind of factor into this specific park because you not only have women's rights, but you have abolition. You have like um, the burned over district, which was huge for religious reform. So a lot of different um, factors um, that really not Re yeah, really influenced women's rights to kind of emerge in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. So you can dive into different facts of those or different factors of those and really kind of explore those and how those um, interrelate with one another. So the question I always ask people about this part of the country is that why does Rochester, Seneca Falls, upstate New York, it's like a spiritual center. What is it about this part? And this about this part of New York because, you know, Rochester was the start of the psychotherapy movement. It's like the mecca for psychotherapists and talk therapy and Carl Rogers. Um, and so do you have you thought about that? Like why this yeah. part of the world? So it's um, traditionally going into a lot of kind of um, the burned over district of this area. And explain what that is because 
Yeah. Rebecca tried to educate me. Um, so the Burnover District, essentially there was, um, it's a nickname in upstate New York, which is essentially that this area was so burned over with religious reform and kind of religious fever that it, it, there was, you, it was burned over. Um, too much was happening at one time and really stirred a lot of these different movements and kind of ideas. And with any religious movement comes many new social ideas. So you can look civil rights movement, huge um, religious influence there. Um, a lot of different things that happened throughout history are kind of um, guided by religion. And so with the spiritualist movement, movement in particularly, um, it was kind of started in Rochester and really the Fox sisters played a pivotal role into that, Kate and Maggie Fox. Um, so really like the McClintocks, um, they're um, the table where the Declaration of Sentiments was drafted, that's where um, seances were held. So a lot of different like interactive things that happened um, within this area because a lot of these Quakers believed that there was kind of the spiritualist movement. They could communicate with the dead and um, it really played into these new ideas. So the Quakers seem to be at the beginning of all of these things, spiritualism, the women's movement. Why? But the Quakers were anti- military or government. So what was it about the Quakers that started and influenced all of these movements? I would definitely have to say um, I'm not a Quaker expert, but I have definitely... You should have, be, it's <laughs> fascinating. Yeah. Um, definitely from my um, kind of personal research, it's just because of their um, religious viewpoints. They don't um, discriminate based on um, sex or race and so it's really kind of pivotal and they're taught that from the beginning like as young children and they carry that over into their adult life and that's what um, a lot of these Quakers were doing um, and kind of with their teachings and they were really about um, a lot of co-educational um, things so um, there was no discrimination discrimination when it came to women being in the same classroom as boys and learning the same material as them. They would learn different things. Um, women would learn to sew and men would learn like um, land surveying, but that's two different fields, I guess. But still, they were um, really integrated into both aspects of kind of man and woman. Um, same thing with race as well. Like Frederick Douglass was often in, in attendance at Martha Wright's home and she actually said, you can come and stay in my home. Even though she wasn't Quaker, she still practiced Quaker beliefs. Um, so it really just kind of, um, they did not um, discriminate and that's what they were basically trying to convey and that's what a lot of these people who weren't Quakers were starting to adapt their kind of thinking and their morals and especially Lucretia Mott tried to instill that into Elizabeth Cady Stanton saying you can't start a movement until you actually um, or you can't have institutional change until you have kind of moral and social change in people and that's essentially not what they were trying to do directly, but they were trying to basically say, find your inner light, let it speak to you. And a lot of it kind of resulted as a result of that. Is there something about this place that must have a spiritual energy? I don't know. All right. I just find it fascinating because every time I come up here, I learn more how interconnected all of these like, it never occurred to me that what was going on with Lucretia Mott would somehow in any way be connected to what was going on in spiritualism, but there are these direct connections. Is this the reformist period in it's the 1840s? Also, Is that? It's by historians, and trust me, historians do not like to take titles lightly. Okay. <laughs> it's the period of revolutions. We're having the oh, Industrial so Revolution. In okay. We're having all these religious revolutions. We're having everything is right at this time period. So it is a time period of great change. Yeah. It's just rolling. Like basically, um, 
like I said, abolition, women's rights, um, re religious revival, the spiritualist movement. There were so many kind of revolutions happening because mm -hmm. um, it was just a, a, the birth of a nation. So essentially it was essentially so many different things could happen at one point. Um, and so many different people were here and kind of integrating their belief systems into one that it's really interesting to look at the greater mm -hmm. picture of it overall. Right. So. And you call it, it's the burned out? Burned over district. Burned over district. Was that a negative, con was that a negative term? I don't think so. Um, personally um, speaking, it's, I don't think they technically used it. It's, I think it's what historians have kind of given this area of New York mm -hmm. kind of being just looking at all of it happen because it the Erie Canal was here too and that factioned into a lot of it because right, Rebecca said about the movement of goods and yeah the, and movement of ideas and kind of thoughts that were going through such a rapid pace so definitely history so fun if you're just tuning in this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist I'm Elizabeth Barrett and this is a special program from my visit to the Women's Rights National Historic Park in western New York last summer I'm not in the studio today, but you can still be a part of the program by visiting our Facebook page, The Reluctant Therapist, or sending an email to elizabeth at thereluctanttherapist.com. You can listen to previous shows at kcbx.org or podcast through Apple Podcasts. We continue now with our conversation at the Women's Rights National Historic Park in Seneca Falls, New York. So now we're out in the streets of downtown Seneca Falls. Yes, and less than 100 feet away from our visitor center is the Wesleyan Chapel, the actual location of where that convention that happened in 1848. So July 19th and July 20th, 1848, this is the place where it's going to spur these ideas. Um, it's actually built in 1843, and that's where we're going to be walking into. Uh, now the Wesleyan Methodists, they're a branch of the Methodists. They already had a little bit of a strife with the Methodist Church. Uh, they don't believe in slavery. Oh. So they're anti-slavery. Uh, the Wesleyans, the Methodist Church was still, they weren't promoting it, but they didn't have these strong abolition feels that the Wesleyans. So 300 people, because this room's not as big as I guess I imagined a convention no. to be. So it's built, as I was saying, in 1843 for the Wesley Methodist Church, and it kind of turns into what's called a great lighthouse in this area. They allow people to come in and hold these talks about abolition, about temperance, reform movements. So the men who were with their wives and everything were able to have it then for the Women's Rights Convention. It's about 64 by 43 feet. Okay. It's not big at all. It was, the street was a little bit lower, so there was actually like a couple steps to come on into the building when it was. But it looks actually completely different today. Oh, it does. Um, so unfortunately, because they were that lighthouse, so many things had happened here. And the church itself started to show its wear, and so much so that by 1872, they sell this place. And they move to a different location here in town, and they sell it to an opera house. So it was used as an opera house. The opera house decided to have roller skating <laughs> in it as well. So there was a roller skating. It had some stores in it, and then it also had a car dealership in it as well. And when the Park Service actually acquired it, it's been expanded upon and everything, so much so that it was a laundromat with apartments upstairs. Really? Yeah. Uh, at one point, there was actually a movie theater here attached and everything. We have since 
Um, we actually had a couple, a couple months ago come in and say that their first date was actually at the movie theater that was Used here. to be here. And so when the Park Service gets a site, it's then up to us to protect and preserve that history, not only for our present generations, but for our future generations to know more. Um, even if every problem was solved, we still need to know our past. So it's a place to come to, to inspire, to educate. So we're usually in the business of removing anything that's not really historical. And that's what we did. So when you're in here, you'll see, I call it the red brick. Okay. And the red brick is the original brick. There's also behind plexiglass, the original stucco for the walls as well. And then we have the rafters and some beams up there that date back to the same time period. And that was it. And according to the Park Service, that's it. That's all that should be standing here is actually those two walls and that roof that's there. Really? Uh, however, New York winters taught us that if we do want this for future generations, we needed to enclose it. So that's where you see the pale gray brick in it today. It now has a roof and beams supporting it. So what should be here is if this was a recreation, which we're not really in the full business of doing, there would have been wooden floors. Mm -hmm. There would have been an aisle down. Up on the top, there's little holes where the slats would have been. There was mm. galleries on three sides. And galleries here. meaning the balcony seating? Yeah, balcony seating that would have been housed in here. We do have the correct number of windows and everything. And then just very simple whitewashed walls. You would have your pulpit with most likely your cross behind it as well. And this would have been a place where they all came in. But it is a tiny space. Mm. And they did have 300 people, they estimate come out and attend those convention dates. So it's pretty amazing that they mm -hmm. are able to do these. And, and when you call it a lighthouse building, does that mean it's like a community building or an open building that anyone can come into? Um, it was their descriptor back then of a place that was kind of shining out reform movements, oh. letting things be spoken out to the world, giving a voice and calling in those that need a place to come on into and everything. So it's pretty amazing that this location allowed for that to happen. And that's why they were welcoming and able to have this amazing, um, what they consider groundbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's something that we might need today is to bring back the idea of lighthouse. Uh, places, spaces where people from the community can come and just share all ideas. Like, it's almost like we've divided ourselves so much in our own little communities. We need just an open space. And this, that's what this place, we of course hold events here all yeah, the time. Yeah, do you do? Yeah, so like we do, we allow um, performances to come on in here. We, we, our big event is actually every July. So if anyone's looking for a road trip or one to come, come and look for convention days. We have event after event after event honoring those convention days, and we bring in talks about every subject that you can possibly imagine most times, and performances and singers and everyone come on in here. Uh, even inside our visitor center, we allow artists to put up their artwork in there and convey mess different messages and tap out. Um, we actually just got rid of a artwork from local schools that had placed up here when they were given questions to answer. But that's today, even back then, even when it was that opera house and everything like that, this was still, they might not necessarily have been inside the building, but they still treated it like a historic, historic place. And so what is the plan what is the plan for 2020? What do you envision, or what is the park envisioning? We're going to be honest with you, we are expecting to do our convention days cranked up a notch. Okay. So we are taking in and 
we're learning from our past convention days, what works, what doesn't work, and we're building onto that, hopefully have more speakers, have more performances, have little things, of course, for kids and families to come on out and really get fully involved and understand what it is like, not just necessarily that convention days, but the women's history throughout. But we are mapping it out and really hoping to, it'll be an event. We know it will definitely Absolutely. be an event to remember to have a full connection because it's not that long ago in our history. A hundred yeah. years is nothing. You blink an eye and we'll be at the next one. I exactly. Mean, and you think about, yeah, how many things have happened in the hundred years since women got the right to vote. And yeah. so is there, is, these are the essence of the park. There is like another location. So in between the visitor center and the Wesleyan Chapel, we have what's called Declaration Park and it has the Declaration of Sentiments written on a water wall that folks can walk on through, and it's a little bit of a green space. But the park also owns several of those five ladies' homes. So we do actually have Elizabeth Katie Stanton's house, and you're able to, on the weekends, go on over there and see where she was living, where these great ideas were, the speeches were written to give to Susan B. Anthony to travel <laughs> out west, and how her life was up here, um, especially since she's not here very long, actually. She's a he year before the convention, so in 1847 is when she'll move out here, and she's here until about 1863. And then where um, does she, she go? She moves farther lower state in New York um, New Jersey New York City area is where she'll end up moving so she it's about 20 years that she's here but these are great ideas that are actually coming out of this so we have her house here we also have the McClintock's house that you can go over and see and it's a small little stop but it's great to actually see that parlor where these ideas were going along with the Underground Railroad and the abolition movement because the McClintock's Marianne McClintock, along with Lucretia Mott, helped found the women's branch of abolition down in Philadelphia. There were a couple of the co-founders there. And they were so against slavery that they actually, what's really cool is they had were part of the free produce. Okay. And that means that they will not sell anything produced by slave labor. So everything in their store, and they would take out advertisements and flat, tell them, Hey, we got free produce. No slave labor was used in the making of any of our products here. They're so. the original free trade store. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah. So just to their story alone, and they kind of get overshadowed by our greater figures that we have here. And um, the Park Service does own the Hunt House. You can, of course, drive past, take a stop, and see the home, the exterior of where this all got started, that tea, that got the wheels chugging of, okay, we talked about this, we said we needed to do something, we're gonna do and something now. Because you imagine there were a lot of people, you know, this way, a lot of people, women, were having these thoughts in different mm -hmm. pockets, but it takes a very, I don't know, like you said, the, the, the timing of people coming together to make it happen. Absolutely. So what haven't I asked you that you want me to know? I have the questions that I'm curious about, but I'm sure you have much more knowledge than, than I'm even knowing to ask you questions about. So what, is it, what do you, is it that you like to share about your job here? So to me, what I like is the fact that this isn't just, like our title of course is Women's Rights National Historical Park, but this isn't just 
about women. It is a full story. It involves the help from everybody to make this actually. So it's a park of all of us. It's a park of our nation's past. A place for everyone. There is a story for every single person who comes in here that it's not just, oh, well, this only relates to this person. Right. No, it truly is a part of our country's past. It's something that it still inspires and it's still going forward and everything and it's amazing to work at a place and to actually be at the location. I know your listeners listening to it, mm -hmm. but actually being here and seeing and feeling and oh wow. And we even have like a pulpit right up front where you can hear Elizabeth Kaysen read the Declaration of Sentiments to you. And she did this at the age of 32. And I wonder if we, in this time of technology, you know, people have the patience to see any sort of movement foster and grow and carry on multi-generations because she said Katie Stanton wasn't alive to see the 19th Amendment pass. Was it her daughter that was that continued the work or was it? Yeah, her yeah. daughter Harriet will continue working mm -hmm. and everything along with other organizations that will grab more people into it as it goes farther and farther up. So, but yeah, it is a multi-generational thing. It is not just, um, Ken Burns actually has a PBS movie and it's entitled Not For Ourselves Alone. Yes, yeah, it has to look those seven generations out. Yeah. So I guess my last question is, how have you changed since you've come to work here? To me, it's yet again learning another piece of the story. Um, so because I've worked at so many parks, it's, it is like how earlier you were saying, oh, you kind of get like a PhD in mm -hmm. that thing. Well, now I'm getting it in this topic. And for me, it's really clicking together all those pieces of like, oh, wow, now this makes sense. Because um, the parks that I originally started out with, they're all Civil War. And then you get to actually Natchez, Mississippi, and they're in antebellum. And they're talking about the same time period. And to have that click up with what are the women in the South doing versus what are the women in the North doing and everything, and finally understanding how we got to this point today, mm -hmm. that's what I, I absolutely been loving, being able to, oh, this all adds up now at this point. And that's what really drives me. And, also, the fact that I get to share this every day. I get to see the little girl come in and actually we have like Junior Ranger books where they get to learn a little bit more and I get to give them a badge and see that that gets carried on, that this isn't a story that just stays here, but we spread it on and it's not just going to stay with me, it's hopefully going to go on to the next generation as well. I'm Elizabeth Barrett and this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. You're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. And do you, all of you are kind of millennial age, do you feel hopeful that your generation will have a movement? You know, will, will, will there be something that your generation is remembered for more than the technology? What are your thoughts? I mean, it really is just learning about the history and just kind of, you, history repeats itself. So you really just have to kind of um, take in what these women did and kind of just apply it, treating people the way you would like to be treated, the golden rule, mm -hmm. and really kind of going onwards from there. And I personally think that's what I do. I learn from, I interpret the history, I listen to the history, and that's what I kind of apply to my daily life. So is there something like Newton or Quinton that you love about this place or the stories that, that you want me to know that I wouldn't even know to ask. So right now I'm working on a project um, incorporating the story of indigenous women oh. um, into, uh, into this story um, in the Haudenosaunee uh, nation here. Are uh, they in New York? Right. Um, 
sort of the northeast going into Canada as well. Um, but a lot of those traditional um, cultures, cultures which are still living today, um, were very matriarchal, where women um, sort of chose who the chiefs were and had the power to depose those chiefs as well. Um, and they were in contact with some of those white feminists here as well. So just incorporating all sides of the story is what I like doing. That'd be fascinating. So the, the indigenous uh, families that were here in the 1800s, did they interact peacefully with the Quakers and the residents? Or, I mean, was there a, a cooperative that was happening at the time? Yeah, they were definitely in, sort of interacting with each other um, socially, economically, in all, all sorts of different ways. So do you think that the original suffragists um, learned or saw the way these families, the indigenous families, were operating and said, we need to be more partnered like that? I think, they, I think they definitely saw it as an alternative and as a, another way of looking at things. So they, it was, they were very familiar with it. Tell me the name of the, the tribe again. Uh, it's the Haudenosaunee people. So it's actually five or six different um, tribal nations sort of in one confederacy. The Iroquois is another name for it. Okay, thank you. Sure. And one lady who kind of gets written out who helped with the Haudenosaunee is Matilda Jocelyn Gage. Yeah, she's kind of like that third person in the Elizabeth K. Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and then it's Matilda Jocelyn Gage, and she did a ton of work. Um, they actually have her house uh, that you can go see over in Fayetteville, yes, Fayetteville, New York, and she was big in the women's rights movement, but she was also big in the local tribes issues that were going on around here. I mean, any social issue, she basically had her hand in, and she's one of those ladies that was a little bit overlooked by history that we should probably know her as a household name, but she unfortunately didn't make it into the books. <laughs> we need every little town and community needs their, I mean, we have historical societies, but maybe all the historical societies need to incorporate a more balanced history. That, or to me, it's one of those things where each small town has a piece of the story mm -hmm. and I would love to have like a little bit of a big database that connects each small town with each small town because I know they do highlight at least in a couple of places I've been especially um, that there are women's stories like strong powerful stories there but they don't connect it with the next woman's story or they mm -hmm. don't connect it with how does this fit into the greater story of everything and it seems like we are proud of our history on the local level but sometimes we don't connect all the dots. Right. This has been a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and I hope this show has inspired you to take a trip to western New York and to Seneca Falls. There is a lot to experience, not just the history, but the energy of the place itself. And I look forward to joining you back in the studio next Tuesday at 2. Until then, thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting Public Radio KCBX. I am woman, hear me roll. In numbers too big to ignore And I know too much to go back and pretend Cause I've heard it all before And I've been down there on the floor No one's ever gonna keep me down again Well, yes, I'm wise But it's wisdom for the pain Yes, I paid the price But look
Stronger, not enough. 